Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 184. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, someone I've been listening to for the last 28 years. Not only mean I listen to her all the time, but anytime I happen to be in the car, I have caught her voice more times than I can remember. And the reason I say that, and I bring this up in the episode is because I got an email from her. I didn't pursue this person. She reached out to me. We met. She said, you just seem like someone I should know. And we ended up talking about Mile High 100. We talked about some of the things that I'm involved with. I've sent her some pitches over the years, but we'd never connected in person. And so when I got the email, it said, Kathy Walker. And my brain automatically goes, oh, Kathy Walker, 85 KOA News Radio. Because I used to listen to KTCL and KBPI almost exclusively. And... You know, not to denigrate any of the other stations here in Denver, but if I'm listening to music, I'm probably listening to those too. Those are part of the iHeartMedia umbrella. And Kathy will chime in time to time with a news update. So she'll provide news updates uh, along with her team to their cluster of stations. So I get the email and I'm like, oh, Kathy Walker, KOA News Radio. And to get to sit down with her, she was just as delightful as I'd hoped. She has been working for this company. It's gone through some name changes since 1990. That is a long time. That carries with it a ton of institutional knowledge. And so I was thrilled when she agreed to be on my show because this is a fantastic episode. It covers two things I love, journalism and radio in particular. I have always had love for radio. You were listening to me on a podcast right now. I don't know that I'd be doing a podcast if I didn't have a background in radio. And my job involves journalism. I'm not a journalist myself, although I like to think that what I do here has a journalistic bent to it. But I interact with journalists all the time. Having a strong journalism institution here in Denver is really, really helpful as a public relations professional. Some PR people tend to have an adversarial view with journalists and... It's not necessarily the PR people, but it's the companies they represent. Now, I say on this episode, I don't want a journalist to write me a press release. I can do that myself. What I really want is someone that I can talk to, someone who can tell the story in a new way. Because all I do in my professional life is I try to enhance understanding of complex issues. That's it. So having a strong journalistic enterprise here in the city, especially one that has the reach of iHeartMedia... And Kathy Walker being the news director for them, that makes me feel good. So we spend some time talking about journalism. We talk about the current challenges, the reductions in staff, as well as some of the pressure coming from high above in this country. 
uh, targeting journalists in particular, fake news, that kind of thing. And we also talk about some stories from the trenches. Kathy has had an interesting path to get where she is. She didn't start necessarily in strictly journalism. She didn't even finish college before she got her first job. She did eventually finish college, but getting there is a fascinating tale of, in particular, what college I think used to be. And I think college is a little bit different now. She also gives us some insight into the Nathan Dunlap case and a major story she broke during the Nathan Dunlap trial. Nathan Dunlap, as you may or may not know, I think the only person on death row in Colorado right now. That story is harrowing. What a fantastic piece of insight that she provides. Overall, this is just a delightful chat. And Kathy Walker is a terrific person. And I'm proud to know her now. I'm proud to feature her work here on the John of All Trades podcast. If I can just take a moment, give a plug and give some love to the Denver Podcast Network. Co-founded last year between Paul Caroli and myself. He's the host of Changing Denver. We brought together other podcasts under the same umbrella because we want to point you to cool shows that you may not be aware of. So at the beginning of each John of All Trades episode, you will hear an ad for one of our shows on our network. And these are shows like Left Hand Right Brain, The Revisionists, I already mentioned Changing Denver, The Real Nerds Podcast, Denver Orbit, and one I don't have an ad for, but one that you should listen to is The Voice of Montbello. Paul Clifton produces this. He's a dynamite guy. And it's a bunch of high school students getting to produce their own media. Now, they talked to former Denver police chief Robert White. They also had Mayor Hancock on their show. He is doing remarkable work, and you should check out Voice of Montbello. You can see all of these shows at the Denver Podcast Network website. That is denverpodcast.net. So denverpodcastsingular.net. You'll find all the shows there. Check out some new shows in Denver that you may not have listened to before. I've been a guest on Left Hand Right Brain. I've been a guest on Real Nerds, and I'm just thrilled to pieces to bring these shows to you, including 2018 Best Denver Podcast, according to the Westward, Denver Orbit. So once again, denverpodcast.net. Now then, on to episode 184 of the John of All Trades podcast. I've got Kathy Walker. She is the news director at KOA News Radio. She has been there since 1990. She has incredible stories to tell, and her episode starts right now. We actually staff the newsroom 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's a local newscast on the air here. Jeez. 24-7. Really? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm assuming with like Rockies games and stuff, you know, because KOA also, you know, sporting events and things like that. But I'm obviously not listening in the middle of the night, especially now that I have kids. Right. <laughs> Um, I got to be up and ready right. to go. Right. But, uh, I mean, there's there's news being produced all through the night. All through the night. Wow. Um, we're kind of an anomaly in that respect. Um, and I'm proud of it, actually. Uh, it's things like the Aurora Theater shooting. I hate oh. to say the Boulder floods that have really made us committed to that. Wow. We even really got our heads around remaining a 24-7 newsroom. We've always been since I've been here. Um, and when was that? 1990. Nice. <laughs> but uh, we really got our heads about the importance of it, our heads around the importance of it. Uh, during T-Rex, during the big revamp of sure. I-25, we were having traffic problems at 2 a.m. Wow. We were having, you know, major road construction issues that caused 
real headaches and heartaches for people at three thirty in the morning. Well, I I remember so that's part of it. That's okay, part, that's part of the reason. That makes good sense. Uh, T Rex, I remember started. I was in. I was like ten years old mm-hmm. or twelve or something. Mm-hmm. And they said it'll be done, and I was going to be an adult, and it was hard to wrap my mind around that at the time. And for all of us who have lived and worked on the south end of Denver, <laughs> you know, it was so frustrating. I, I can live only imagine. what should be a 10 to 15 minute commute away from the radio station. Right. And no matter what route I took, surface streets, I 25, no matter how I went. I was at 45-minute commute time. Oh, gross. So it really changed all of our thinking about traffic and the importance of traffic. And so part of the real reason why we still staff a traffic and weather person in this building at all times is because of T-Rex. On some level, that's why we're still doing it. So, Kathy Walker, you are the news director at KOA, also iHeartRadio. Yeah, I Denver. technically hold the title for iHeart Denver. We okay. do provide news services to other stations in our cluster and even some stations outside of Denver. Well, it's funny because you reached out to me, uh, what was that, like a month ago? And we met for the first time. I know I've sent you some pitches and some news releases over the years. But more importantly than that, I remember you'd come on the air. I'd be listening to KBPI sure. or KTCL or something. And as soon as I saw your name pop up in my email, I'm like, oh, Kathy Walker, KOA News. And I thought some news was coming right. <laughs> just because I read it in your voice. Because, wow. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, I've been listening to you now, I mean, for as long as I can remember. Sure. Um, So how much of your role is on air these days? I still fill in. I tell my closest friends that when you hear me on the air a lot, something bad is happening. Like either (laughs) it's everybody's sick, everyone's on vacation, or, you know, for some reason I have a staff member who couldn't make it to work. So oftentimes now I'm like the fireman of the newsroom (laughs) that you hear me on the air when something bad is happening. I still actually quite frequently anchor newscasts that end up in Fort Collins and Pueblo on our stations there. And that is kind of a heart thing for me a pueblo is my hometown so i kind of like showing up on the radio so you're native i am a colorado native so am i that's unusual yeah i married a native too john this doesn't happen (laughs) in our world (laughs) not anymore um i think it gives me a good perspective on the beauty of the growth here and Mm. really how precious it is um i have a very good friend who lives in the ultimate rust belt of ohio and I recognize the problems that go with a declining economy, a declining yeah. population base. The problems are stark. Yeah, and an aging population right. base especially. All of that. Yeah. And we are so buoyed by and energized by all yeah. the people that are moving here. It's hard to get my head around the traffic. It's hard to get my head around the problems that it brings. We did a really good interview with Carol Walker, no relation, <laughs> who's with the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. Uh-huh. And she talked about, you know, growth brings bad guys sometimes too. It can. You know, that um, it's not always all people who are, you know, flannel shirted millennial <laughs> entrepreneurs. Right. It's not all that. Well, it's funny, speaking about growth, because I interviewed Kyle Clark on this show a while back, and he came from like upstate New York, and he said, look, for all the problems with growth, at least the population isn't going in the other direction. So remember that. For those of you who are natives here, and you've seen the town change, I mean, I, having grown up here, I remember when Denver wasn't like a cool city. Sure. Uh, and as recently as the 80s, my uncle would ask my dad things like, do you have suburbs out there? 
you know, or like, uh, can you get the Cubs score out there? Uh, no, you know, the Western <laughs> Union man hasn't showed up with last month's news. But you go, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. So Denver was this cow town, and it, it it was just another blip in flyover country. And then all of a sudden, I want to say it was right around the Democratic National Convention. Mm-hmm. That's good it, bellwether. Yeah, it really became like a thing. So what was that? Oh eight. I want to, yeah, so that was like Obama. They filled Mile High Stadium for that. And all of a sudden, people were like, wow, what a cool city. And it, it's like the secret was out. I go, why wouldn't people want to live here? The climate's amazing. Yeah. You have the mountains on your back door. And now people are here, and I go, oh, wow, yeah, okay. Be careful what you wish for because, yes, it's good, but it's also not the city that I remember. No. Having traveled in and around Denver my whole life, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty interesting. I actually own a map that shows I-25 ending at Hampton Avenue. The Valley Highway, you mean? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that there was no highway south of Hampton. Right. Um, I remember when the Kodak building, what was the Kodak building in the yeah. tech center, was like so far south. And now the building, you just drive by it. It's no longer a Kodak building, obviously, anymore. Right. And and it just seems nondescript. It's not even it's not even something that you would notice driving by it in the tech center because it's been so engulfed by other things. But Denver was always so tied to natural resource economy, sure. oil economy, boom, bust, um, financial economy even a little bit. We certainly saw some downturn here after 2000 with a dot-com bust, oh, sure. if you will. But to see now the diversity of the economy and how there's just jobs in all kinds of sectors it's that remarkable. never would have existed before here. Yeah, and I mean, I would say the internet has been a big facilitator of that. Certainly what they're doing out at DIA. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was doing my corporate job, I was on the board of governors at the Denver Metro Chamber. And I grew frustrated with that because they weren't talking about my industry ever. Yeah. Uh, I'd go there and I'd be like, okay, so what are we talking about today? DIA or RTD or both? And frequently it was both. Yeah. But I think I underestimated how vital that airport has been. Yeah to what Denver has become. Uh, I think it has been a game changer. I mean, I miss the convenience of Stapleton Airport basically being in the middle of a neighborhood. And I I literally went and met every friend that ever flew through Denver on a layover. It was that close to town. It It was wonderful. They could have an hour and a half on the ground and I'd go meet them for lunch and then they'd jump on their next flight and off they went. But the vision... To yeah. build DIA, to build DIA where it is with the amount of space around it sure. is pretty much a game changer here. Yeah. The fact that there are so many international flights in and out of Denver. Uh, what I like to tell people, too, is that you don't really realize that probably the nicest, closest beaches <laughs> are a two-hour flight away yeah. to Mexico. Yeah. And people go, you can get to Mexico in like two and a half hours? I go, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> That's not nothing. Yeah, and that's a real difference, too, in terms of what you can do in terms of outdoor experience, whether you want it to be on top of a mountain or at a beach. Yeah, I mean, you're connected to everything. So you said you've been here since 1990. Yes, I moved to Denver in 1990. I rented a crummy, tiny basement apartment near DU for $190 a month. (laughs) Have two bedrooms. Nice. I tell people this, so that that blows my mind, but even as recently as 2006, I got my first apartment downtown. I was in West Wash Park, so yeah, I was at uh, Bayard and Clarkson, so not far from Alameda, uh, just real close to everything. I I could get on my bike and be at Wash Park in five minutes. 
which was really nice. It was about 750 square feet, two bedroom, one bath. I rented it for 550 a month. And now I tell people that who are younger than me, who are renting downtown, and their faces just melt clean off. Yeah. Uh, because that's unthinkable now, which is crazy. I rented my first apartment here and did not yet have a full-time job secured at KOA. I was working part-time, mm. but I was getting enough hours. I thought, I can swing this. I could nice. do this. I could do this. Yeah, why not, right? 190 bucks a month, I could do that. So when you were freelancing... Um, so you were doing part-time. Were you at KOA? Yes. Okay. Um, was this uh, like right out of college or did uh, you have stops in between? I did have stops in between. I did the, you know, go to college, leave before I finished college. Uh, I had about a year to go and I left college because I got offered a great job. It wow. was a really horrible economic time. I'm in college at what is now CSU Pueblo. Okay. And I got offered a job as a marketing director at a mall. In California, and they moved me. Wow, they paid to move you. They paid to just move right me. out of college. I wasn't even done with college yet. <laughs> I had been working part time in the marketing department there at the mall, and working, yeah, just working part time and working in a kind of like an internship, a paid internship type of position. And they mm -hmm. go, you know, we really need someone like you in San Jose, California. Can you go? Can you go like at the end of the semester? And I went, well, it's only my junior year. And they go, well, yeah, but can you go at the end of the semester? And I said, sure. Wow. So I did that. I worked in California, worked in Montana as a shopping mall marketing director, believe it or not. What were you pursuing in college? Uh, I had a mass comm degree. Uh, yeah. That's what I was pursuing. And I did finish my mass comm degree eventually yeah. at Pueblo. But um, uh, we had a really interesting career path where you had to learn advertising, PR, news editorial, photography. Wow. So we all learned darkroom work and hmm. kind of like layout and composition. Like sure, so how yeah. to lay out a newspaper, how to lay out, do layout. Like a magazine. Layout and design, yeah. right? We learned that in photography in one track. We learned advertising. And I really kind of even drilled down and was really interested in direct mail and mm -hmm. direct marketing. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting field at the time. And then, uh, and I think, wow, what if I'd have stayed in that? I'd have been so on the forefront of ad, you know, internet marketing sure. and, and direct mail and combined with like email marketing would have been interesting. But anyway, um, then I also worked on the newspaper staff. I did some work on the radio station. We all learned to do a little bit of everything. That's great. And actually all of us who came out of that program were extremely well prepared to have jobs. Fantastic. It was really good. And so I literally at one point or another in my career have gotten paid to do all five of those disciplines. <laughs> really? No yeah. So I've done PR, I've done marketing, I've done advertising. I was an ad buyer in the uh, world of the shopping mall thing. So I learned to buy advertising. Um, I got paid to lay out a magazine once. I've written articles for print. I've obviously done plenty of broadcast. Sure. The only place I've never worked is a television station. Okay. Wow. Never worked in a TV station. When you did ad buying, because I did that at my old PR firm and it was mostly like trade publications. Sure. Um, sure. But ad buying is its own language. Like it's, it is. And these people live to negotiate. And I was not wired that way. I just, I, I'm not a fan of negotiation. I can do it now, but at the time made me very uncomfortable. So right. if, if you're doing something professionally that makes you uncomfortable, you're probably doing the right thing. 
You're learning. You're growing at least. Yeah. And at the end of it, I go, okay, I don't ever want to do that again. I'm glad that I had that experience. What was your experience like doing that? I loved combining the creative piece of doing the creative piece of mm-hmm. advertising along with the science of the ad buying sure. business. Um, sometimes it was all relationships. It was who you could work for what. Okay, I'll buy this <laughs> schedule. What else do we get? You know, um, yeah. I'll um, make this annual commitment to the newspaper. How can we stretch this as far as we can go? You know, how much bang can I get for that buck? And and to me, that was a really fun way of trying to remain really relevant in a marketplace. To me, it was fun. And it was fun to be able to have a budget where you could go, yeah, no, we're going to do a full page ad on that. Nice. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, Or we're going to buy a television schedule that's so impactful that people will really be talking about it. Yeah. Um, And I liked working with the creative people in broadcast too, you know, to be able to go, how can we make this spot just be the best ever? Yeah. How can it pop better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was obviously when television stations still had a lot of in-house creative and you could really work with them really, really directly, really hands-on. Yeah, to me, having having a variety of experiences. This is this is why it's called John of all trades. Yeah. to me is so yeah. valuable. I mean that a- anytime you can pick up a new skill or learn something new, even if you don't like it, you will grow so much from that. And that is, I mean, that's just so important in keeping you vital and keeping you vibrant. And and I'm so fortunate. I've learned so much through my volunteer work as well. Oh, what do I'm, you do? Um, I'm on the board for the Radio Television Digital News Association, RTDNA. We're obviously known in many, many circles as the Murrow Award people. We mm-hmm. award and recognize, you know, a commitment to really quality journalism. Uh, but in addition to that, we really are trying to have our finger on the pulse of how do we hold journalists not necessarily accountable, but how do we uphold the standards that make good journalism? How do we recognize that? How do we foster that? How do we train for that? How do we promote that? And it's also been a big key component in learning how to be a journalism newsroom leader. Like how do you, how do you learn how to, it's one thing for me to be on the air, but how do I coach someone else to do it well? Um, That's a different skill than just doing it. It's It's, a different skill. You're right. It's a very different skill. And I I always say this to to people in particular, as you ascend in your career, whatever it is, they're going to take you away from what you are, what your core competency is and probably what you like doing best. And eventually you're going to be managing people Mm -hmm. uh, if you hope to ascend and you get further and further away. So you have to grow your skill set in a way that you probably weren't prepared for. And, And for me, belonging to a professional organization that helped me do that was really a key component. You had someone else to pick up the phone and go, I'm not quite sure how to navigate this. What would you suggest? Yeah. It was really helpful. And plus it was fun to go to conferences and conventions and learn things and talk to people who do what you do. And yeah. I am really so grateful for that. But that experience and learning about how to run a nonprofit has made me really motivated to go, yeah, maybe my sunset career will be in a nonprofit environment. Yeah, that sounds uh, cool. I would love that. You know, I would love to be able to make a difference in some aspect of our community or our culture and be able to, yeah, put those management skills to work. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You touched on something that is interesting to me um, in terms of working through a professional organization. How do we ensure journalists are, you know, upholding the standards that we have set forth, the best well, practices of the profession? And yeah. I want to touch on that because we're in an environment right now where journalism as a job, as a vocation, is under attack from a number of sources. 
how do you handle what you do and how do you almost defend what you do in an environment like that? I try to be super transparent when I'm challenged, Mm -hmm. you know, when people call here or email here and ask, how in the Sam hell Mm. did that come out of your mouth? Mm. You know, and when it's an honest mistake, like, oh, yeah, we should have said the temperature was 92 instead of 94. (laughs) You know, we apologize. I mean, you know, there's nothing else to do. Right. Right. Um, But when it's that nuanced thing where people are looking at it through one set of objectives or one set of biases even. Or values. Or values, right? You know, we really try to have really good conversations about it. And probably the most vociferous conversation I've been involved with with a listener in the last 6 to 12 months was um, someone who really believed that we were operating off of some sort of almost like talking points kind of list. Mm. And I said, you know, I I just don't even begin to tell you how that is not the case. Most of the people in my newsroom have lived here as long as I have. Um, Many of the people who have been here have been in journalism for a very long time. And we live here. We work here. We observe things here. We've we've known the governors. We've interacted with people in power and people not in power. And I guess we really... We really are kind of optimistic and try to take people at their own word, but we also try to be a little bit skeptical. Sure. And, and and there's that good line of being skeptical but not becoming jaded. Or cynical. Or cynical. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, and we have discussions about that a lot in the newsroom. Am I being cynical by looking at it through this lens? Right. And we have debates about that. That, I think, is the healthy part. That's the part where I almost wish – People who had questions about how the sausage is made in journalism mm-hmm. could watch what goes on in the newsroom when we kind of have those internal debates. Yeah. I think that's healthy. 100%. Really healthy. I, I think it's interesting because I interact sort of outside the media. And when, when you have – when you foster a relationship as a public relations professional with a journalist – it's it's not you're not paying for access you're not paying for a rubber stamp you don't want them to write you a press release because you're doing a disservice to you both yeah. but i think that's misunderstood in terms of pr as well and that's something yeah. i fight against people go oh you do publicity and spin and i go i do neither of those things um what i'm doing is i'm working to tell a story because in the absence of telling your own story no matter what client it is uh i did a campaign at the state capitol for the trade association that represents preschools Right. They deserve a voice. They have things. Policy gets enacted. It affects them in a specific way. If you don't tell that story, no one will ever know. And that to me, like there's an interplay here. There's there's almost a push pull where you're trying to get to a place where the story is told in a real way that benefits the understanding of the public at large. Well, and to me, that brings up a whole other interesting thing. There was a time in which journalists gathered information by being record perusers, record checkers, right? I can remember even my first, one of my first duties at KOA was to go down to the police department and and whip through all of the arrest reports from the night before. And you would literally go down to the, you'd go down to the cop shop and they go, yeah, okay, you're from KOA, whatever, sign here, here (laughs) you go, here's a stack of things. And we would literally look through them. And we'd look for either interesting stories in that arrest report, Mm. or we would look for interesting names. Wow, is that some (laughs) big deal? You know, Von Miller got popped for speeding, you know? That happened in May. We found out about it yesterday, right? Because no one's doing that kind of journalism on a daily basis. I can remember when we did beat calls. We literally called every police department in the Denver metro area 
every morning, very early in the morning, anything happen overnight? Anything going on? What's going on? What's happening? And that type of information gathering just doesn't happen anymore. But there were times where going to a courthouse and checking records is how I came across amazing stories. Wow. Why? Amazing stories. And that just, because of the collapse, I would say to some degree, and the downsizing of the number of journalists in Denver, that doesn't happen anymore. Do you remember a particular story that came about as a result of that sort of shoe leather type journalism? Yes. Uh, the biggest story that I ever turned doing that was, um, if you remember the Chuck E. Cheese murder case. Nathan Dunlap. Nathan Dunlap, who is still on death row, mm-hmm. and his fate will be determined by the next governor of Colorado. Yep. Nathan Dunlap had gone through a very protracted set of pre-trial hearings, like everything that could possibly be examined about the case and the crime, just pre-trial hearing, pre-trial hearing. Like there, I would go to the courtroom Days upon days upon days. My favorite day in the courtroom with Nathan Dunlap is they had put him in a salmon-colored jumpsuit. Okay. And I walked into court wearing a salmon-colored pantsuit. <laughs> we looked like twins. Anyway, um, in checking court records, checking court records, one day the county clerk handed me the wrong set of documents, handed me the set of documents that was intended for the attorneys and not for the media. Oh, my in that set of documents that was intended to be discovery between the attorneys that mm-hmm. the judge had to keep a file of, I found the letter that was offering a plea oh, for Dunlap. My. His attorneys had offered to plead guilty to the crimes, which publicly he, he had denied all throughout the preliminary mm-hmm. hearings, but had offered to plead. And the negotiations clearly around that plea deal had been shared with the family members. And once I had read that document, I was able to talk to the family members and say, were you told of this? And they all said, yes, we were. And we had very mixed opinions about it. Uh, We want to see him tried and put to death Mm -hmm. for this crime. Uh, But we also could see the wisdom in allowing him to plead guilty. So that was a story that I believe at least led to the trial being moved out of Arapahoe County. The trial ended up in Colorado Springs as a result of that story. Uh, uh, Really, people were just shocked. I mean, on some level that after all this denying, denying and court motions and on and on and on and on that he really had had admitted that he'd done it. That's interesting. And to me, one of the things that's striking about that is the clerk hands you the wrong file, right? Yes. I'm assuming that clerk was collateral damage as I'm a result assuming. of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened right. on that level. I don't know what happened to her, but I'm sure she was in trouble. Is that ever challenging for you where you get a piece of information that clearly you're not supposed to get? It's the, it's the mistake of someone else. And as a journalist, you have a duty to report this. But do you ever have personal reservations about, I mean, you basically set this person on fire now. Is, yeah. is that challenging And for the you? answer is, sure it is. You know, because you make friends all over Denver mm-hmm. in the oddest places, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So that is a difficult choice. And there are, there are times where I think I've always been fair about reporting the story, but maybe I hesitated about the follow-up. Like, how much do we need to keep pounding that one? You right, know, I right. mean, maybe I've hesitated about the follow-up, but you're really trying to put a light on 
what is happening yeah. in your community. And in that case, I just felt it was just so incredibly shocking yeah. that he had clearly offered to plead guilty and for various reasons that offer was not accepted. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's an incredible story. And I can't imagine, you know, given that you are a news entity, the different types of stories that you have to do. And one of the old journalism cliches is if it bleeds, it leads, right? How do you balance that, you know, with what's, what's vital and what is shocking and what is most attention grabbing with some of the other less glamorous things, you know, right. how, how does structuring a newscast in terms of ratings, how, how do you make that sausage? That strikes me as an, as an intense challenge. Well, to me, there's never enough time. There's never enough time to write. There's never enough time to research. So sometimes you're doing what rises to the top. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's the information that's easily accessible? But also, what's the information that you know based on the research you've done about your audience, about where they live, who they are, what they do? What are the types of stories that you think rise to their interest level? You're Mm -hmm. guessing. Sometimes you're really guessing. Um, And I think as Denver has grown, we do less neighborhoody type of news and more broad what's of interest to you as a Coloradan kind of story. That makes sense. Um, So that is probably what is sometimes the the dynamic difference. But I don't know that we always get it right. We try really hard every day to make Mm -hmm. good judgment calls on what's interesting and what's fascinating. Um, You know, my favorite would be always to go to a restaurant And this has happened to me where you've covered a story all day and you go to a restaurant and you can hear the people at the next table going, did you hear on KOA today? (laughs) Um, I was at a barbecue maybe two summers ago and I sat down in a group of people who had no idea who I was and they were talking about a research project we had did on commuting. And wow. it was, re- and I was so gratified. I was like, oh, you have just made my summer, you know? <laughs> so th- that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to yeah. reach people in a meaningful way, how they live. And sometimes we admit we pick wrong. Sometimes we sure. pick something that's salacious or funny. Sometimes we pick things that are as shocking, but maybe really not that, not going to change your world. Well, they, they can't, I mean, they can't, no one has a hundred percent success rate. And the other thing is you can't get too involved in the feedback loop. I've done this with this show where I start chasing numbers and I go, this show did really well. I should do more like this. And if you feed people too much of the same thing, it's almost my frustration with when I listen to like a a music app, like Pandora, Mm -hmm. it feeds me a never ending content stream of stuff that it knows I like. And I go, I kind of want something different. Like, right. and, and sometimes you need people to eat their vegetables, number one. And number two, if you can expose them to something that they wouldn't have otherwise come across on their own, that is a really vital service. And that's what's fun about working in a group of people. The ensemble here, we have people who are interested in everything from beer to history to yeah. science to, you know, oh, we should talk to the guy at the Fisk Planetarium, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, so to, for us, it's really fun that, that the options for interesting content are kind of never ending. And I think that's really true of Colorado. Mm-hmm. I think we're really lucky to live in a media market that's, um, pretty interesting. The interest is varied. It's wide. We can do a story on hiking as much as we can do a story on fracking. Right. It's really okay. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty savvy media consumer Mm -hmm. here in Denver, which is really nice too. One thing I'm curious about is you mentioned, 
you know, back, you used to have a staff of people who could go comb through court records and county records. And now the demands, I would say, are even greater because 24-hour news cycle. You said you're on all through the night. And I make the joke about this show because people always come to me and they're like, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And I go, be prepared to feed a monster that eats and never gets full. Now, this is small potatoes. I'm doing like one hour a week. You have hours upon hours in a day. What is that grind like? And and how do you how do you create content to that degree that much? We're all really fast writers. People are <laughs> shocked at how much we write and rewrite and continue to write. We really try really hard not Can to. Can you repeat. word count it in a day? Oh my gosh. Oh jeez. Two thousand words? Two thousand words a day. Uh, like each of you? I guess. Yeah. Jeez. That's... A thousand to two thousand. Easy. I but, just can't even imagine that we're under that. That's If plenty. you're working eight hours, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just... I can't even imagine that it's under that. And we try really hard not to be repetitive. It's easy in an environment like a KOA where it is repetitive because news stories aren't happening every minute. Right. Um, but we try really hard to write and write and rewrite and freshen and polish and make it better the next time. And I, I would say the beast piece of it can be daunting. And then other days you feel bad that you just can't get it all in. You've yeah. taken your Mona Lisa and you've cut out her nose, you know, <laughs> so that you can get it on the air. Um, so I think William Goldman, who's a screenwriter, calls it murdering your children. Yeah, it is. It's like murdering your child. Like you went, oh, this was so beautiful the way I so wrote it. It was so perfect. One of my very best friends in this business um, is a news management person in San Francisco. Mm. And her and I had both agreed to work on a Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. You know, we we're kind of like, we're going to be that boss. We're going to give everybody off, you know, on the backside on this day and we'll work. You know, yeah. and that was the day where Tiger, I believe it was a tiger in San Francisco, killed someone on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. Good Lord. At, at a zoo. Turns out the tiger was born here in Denver. Hmm. And I got tipped off to that and called her and she was like, I'm so glad to know that. But I just want you to know I had my beautiful Christmas show all done and now I have to change it. You know, we I got a new cry. kid, right? We were by like, oh, no. And that's terrible crass sounding way of doing it but yeah you feel like you know as soon as you've got everything set the way you want you have to change it but to me that's the how you never get bored i think (laughs) i think if more millennials knew how much fun the add-ness of being in a newsroom is Mm -hmm. uh they would want to do this the reality is most of them are just kind of like what you you mean i could be meeting with the governor in the morning and out on a fire like a wildfire in the afternoon we're like yeah that could happen yeah. make sure you have shoes <laughs> yeah do you have tips for people entering this business make sure you have shoes is a good one yeah make sure you have shoes but i mean are there practical tips like that you reminded me of forrest gump it's like socks <laughs> <laughs> you know like that that uh that makes the difference here in this platoon yeah. always have good socks in terms of journalism what do you need? Uh, love to write. It still comes down to the writing. It still comes down. Can you be clear? Can you be direct? Can you be concise? Can you be engaging, engaging, artful, beautiful with how you write? Um, and that's the, that's still what keeps me sitting in front of a computer every day, trying to write news stories every day. Yeah. Um, because we 
all go. It's all about the writing. And we're all envious of how one another writes. We're like, oh, I wish I'd have said it like that. Um, The turning of the (laughs) phrase is still what is really the bottom line. When people have no concept of of what I do for a living, I will often identify myself as a writer. What I really, really, really do is I'm a writer. Yeah. I, I read a quote recently because there's some frustration with particularly the large institutional newspapers when when they write about a story or an issue, you know, there's some complaint about saying, well, this side says this, this side says this, and they leave it at that. That's the end of the argument. I read a quote, from, and I can't remember who it was from, but it said, as a journalist, your job, if someone says, hey, it's raining outside, the other person says, no, it isn't, it's your job to look out the window yeah. and, and report the truth. Is that a fair assessment? And how do you take that criticism when people say the news media gives too much credence to both sides? Wow. Boy, I think we try really hard to give both sides. What's hard in a broadcast environment is both sides don't happen simultaneously. Right. The perspective doesn't come instantly. So the reality is... That's why I tell people you have to have multiple sources of input. Yes. You should be reading something in print or online. You should be listening to a television broadcast. You should be digesting radio. It doesn't happen simultaneously. So for the most part, I think we get to all of that. We just may not get to it in the same minute. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think, too, that the beauty of working around some veteran journalism people is they can really slice through that pretty quickly because yeah. we have we have some history in our heads. There was a recent story that happened in Denver, and we realized that we were the only newsroom that remembered the backstory. Huh. Us and Channel Four wow. were the only newsrooms that had, shall I say, seasoned enough enough people that remembered the hmm. backstory. One of the things that is a frustration for me, because I am working with the media quite a bit, so I'm very media savvy. I'm very media literate. How do we improve media literacy in this country? Because a lot of people don't know the difference in a newspaper between a a story and an opinion piece. They don't know the difference between an op-ed and, you know, (sighs) journalism. How do we increase people's savvy with that? Because so much of what you find online now... There are any number of outlets that are confusing fact and opinion. And I worry that that we're losing what makes journalism so vital through the confusion of that. So how do you increase someone's media literacy? Uh, our executive director for RTDNA just wrote an article about this that was in USA Today about mm. how Sean Hannity is not a journalist. Right. And it's not that we have anything against Sean Hannity. There's per a se. place in our world, clearly at KOA, there's a giant place in our world for opinion. Mm-hmm. We like discussing opinions. We like having opinions. Certainly. I really don't even get people who say they're apolitical. No don't way. Have it. I don't even get that. I don't even get I can't that. relate to that on I, any level. Me neither. So I really gravitate to people with strong opinions. Certainly. But I don't necessarily want to promote any one person's opinion. So I think what's really important to talk to young people about is to form opinions, Mm -hmm. to be able to analyze information. I think what I went to college for, when I really stand back and look at it, besides the good trade school education Mm -hmm. I got, what I really learned was how to analyze information, how to 
be skeptical, how to check, how to make sure that information really was information and not someone's opinion. Yeah. And, and so to me, that critical thinking element is why we want to send someone to college. Yes. You should be learning to be a critical thinker in a college environment. Agreed, 100%. And when we met the first time, one of the things that we talked about was just be like spend time with people you disagree with. Like get together, just open exchange of ideas. You don't necessarily have to accept their idea, but you can entertain it. You can go, let me sort of judge that on its own merit. I've never looked at the world that way. Get on their side of the table, look at it and go, I see what you're getting at, but I still disagree. That's okay. That's healthy. That's how we evolve. That's how we grow. And that to me is the essence of what journalism is and what it should be. Yes. I was a debater in high school. Mm. And part of the challenge of doing forensics was that you had to be able to speak intelligently on any topic with very little prep. And you also had to be able to debate both sides of a case. Yeah. So to me, having that depth of understanding of maybe not only one or two or three or four sides of an issue gives you the chance to ask good questions, gives you the chance to really understand why you like something and why you don't. Right. And boy, I just, I think it's really sad when people won't listen to the other side because I've learned from all sides. I guess I would say I'm a benefit. I have benefited immensely from being able to listen. Me too. I mean, I, and I don't work in journalism. I work in advocacy. But part of what I do is I deal in contentious issues all the time. And people on the opposite side of whatever issue I'm advocating for will come to me and they will tell me what whatever it is they tell me. I'm afraid of this or this is wrong. What you're doing is hurting us in this way. And I always tell people if they want to get involved in advocacy, people have heard what they've heard. It's not your job to judge the merit of what they heard. People are entitled to be wrong. They can be wrong about whatever it is that you're sort of on the other side of them from. But it doesn't mean that they're crazy. They've heard what they've heard. That's the information that they have. It's your job to fill in the other side of the picture and go, hey, you know what? If I had heard only what you heard, I'd probably be afraid too. And as soon as you can express that empathy and you can say, okay, I get where you're coming from. Here, let me help you fill in this side of the picture and maybe assuage some of that fear. You may not move them fully to your side, but... You've enhanced their understanding, and hopefully you walk away both better for that. I had the very great pleasure in Denver of interviewing Tip O'Neill late in his life, long after he'd been Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. Opposite Reagan. Right. Mm -hmm. And, John, you've nailed it right on the head. He talked about what a great president Reagan was to a a small group of us Mm -hmm. uh, in his hotel room in downtown Denver. Sat us all down, and we just had a great conversation talked about Reagan's great wisdom and power and leadership, but he also talked about how Reagan needed Tip O'Neill, how Reagan needed him, that the yin and the yang of understanding compromise and statesmanship, and there might be another way to look at something, was what made Reagan really great. Yeah, and it's not the trench warfare that you seem to see today. No, and it's not the never the two shall discuss or meet or talk. It's not this indignation with the other side. It was really an understanding of if you give me a sandwich, I'll give you Kool-Aid. It'll Mm -hmm. all be good. And 
Tip O'Neill was just blew me away by understanding his role in the history of the United States wow. through the Reagan era. That's amazing. It was really cool. It was cool that he had that perspective even after he had long since retired. Yeah. It was great. It was really great. I'm exhausted by politics as team sport because I I want my team to win. And more than I want my team to win, I want the other team to lose. You know, I want them to suffer. I want them to lose. And you go, no, no, you you guys are mistaking this. This is not the game we're playing. These are not the teams. We're all Americans. We're all on the same team. How do we... Do what's best for the vast majority of us. How do we rise many boats, not not defeat the other half of us? To me, and that's enormously dispiriting. And that gets back to the, the axiom of all politics are local. Mm-hmm. I have seen local leaders in horrific situations here. Um, you mentioned Aurora. Yeah, Aurora theater shooting, Columbine. Mm-hmm. Um, even um, the fires on the western slope, we were talking about the South Canyon fire over in Glenwood Springs. And I, I saw leaders in that community do amazing things to take care of their community yeah. in the midst of just devastation, just the worst thing they could ever imagine. And so to me, that became not about whether you had an R or a D or an I or a G after your name, but it really became about how do we take care of each other as a community, as a state, as a nation? Um, It's a very patriotic thing to go to like a presidential inauguration. I've been fortunate to go to one and you sit back and you go, we're an amazing country that we can change power without there being a war. So (laughs) why are there wars and coups us outside of that? I struggle with the contentious nature of it. I'm a peacemaker at heart, so I want people to come to compromise. I want people to have the ultimate goal of the greater good in in their line of sight. And and I think Colorado's benefited from everything from, you know, environmentalists to Douglas Bruce. Mm -hmm. I I think we've benefited (laughs) from all of that. Wow. I, I think that's a great perspective, and it's one that I share. I you think about negotiation, you don't want one side to walk away going, I got 0% of that. And the other side going, I got 100%. Well, okay, good for you. That's nice. If both sides walk away going, hey, you know, I got 60%. If they can both walk away feeling like they got more than half, that's nice. That's that's the ideal way to me that it should operate. And it doesn't always. So I'm hoping I'm an optimist at heart. I am too. I, I, I am hopeful. <laughs> You have to be as a journalist because, I mean, you see so much every day that I think if you internalized it and you wore it too much, you wouldn't come to work anymore. You have to have an inherent optimism about you to continue to do what you do and report on the things that you see. Well, and I think it's an idealism that the truth wins. Yeah. I I tried to explain that to someone many, many years ago who was a very powerful business person in this community. And he was just convinced that every person who was a journalist was so liberal, he could never relate to them. And I said, I appreciate why you might think that. But I guess what I see is idealism and that people think the truth will over supersede everything will overcome. The truth is the answer. Yeah. And sometimes... I've reported on things that I later learned were not quite the truth. Mm. And I've worked very hard to get the truth out. Yeah. Um, but that that's the challenge. You get people sometimes who won't tell you the truth. And you try to take them at their word. And you want them to be true to their word. And it's very disappointing when they're not. Yeah, I agree. 
what's next? What's what's the future of news? What's the future of radio? Because people have said terrestrial radio is going to die <laughs> for the last, what, 100 years? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I don't think you can kill it personally. I love radio too much. I, I think, and especially terrestrial radio, there is nothing lo- as local and as immediate as getting in your car and you, you know where you can go right then. So in your estimation, where are we headed? Where are you headed? What do you see ahead? Well, I still think um, radio is relevant. Talk radio is relevant because of the real live instant nature of it. Mm -hmm. I think all that the internet has done is prove is that you have to interact. We've always interacted. We've always (laughs) taken calls. We put people on the air with their opinions. We've always been willing to do that. So to me, like, oh, wow, we got a lot of Facebook comments on that. Wow. Yeah, I know. I was just in the control room. They got a hundred phone calls, you know, like, (laughs) you know, I know how that can work. So to me, I think there is a lane for radio. I think maybe the delivery system sometime will change that there won't be a big giant KOA tower in Parker maybe someday right. that we'll all drive and dock our phones and all be on some sort of, sort of internet connected way in which we listen. Right. But, and um, I think if either you or I knew that, we, yeah. we would be in a much different yeah. type of environment. Right. But I do think there will be value. Even just the rise of podcasts, you look mm-hmm. at that, there's still value in people having conversations, discussions, viewpoints, information. I think there's going to be a lane for it always. Yeah. And to me, the variety that's available in the world of radio is really refreshing, really fun. No, I agree with you 100%. Okay, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you? Uh, online, on the air, oh, anything you want to plug right now. Excellent. Well, koanewsradio.com is our website. And we've had lots of conversations about what a website for a radio station like KOA should really be because we really can't compete with the Denver Post or Nine News. On some other level, though, we're like a big giant filing cabinet. (laughs) If you've heard something interesting on the air or have a question for us, that's really the place to go. Yeah, it's like an archive. It's an archive. And it's a really helpful thing. I almost kind of look at koanewsradio.com as like our giant business card. You might get a Mm. sense of who we are, where to find us, what we really do, just by looking at our business card there. Um, I love Twitter. I hate to admit how I much too. I love Twitter. So KOA News Radio is on Twitter. That's a really cool place to find us. Uh, you can find me, Kathy Walker, on Twitter. I don't really tweet about all things news. I'll talk about the show I saw at Red Rocks or uh, cool. other weird, bizarre things. But Or I'll talk about the work of RTDNA there. Um, Facebook is a really interesting thing. I still view that as kind of a private space. I don't interact a lot on Facebook. I do, though, however, find people like you, John, on Facebook. And sometimes (laughs) that's how we communicate is instant messenger is the the way in which I find people. Yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes uh, I I have folks who I deal with who are generationally uh, above me and they'll go, I can't believe I'm texting with clients. Like text messages. To them, they're like, I can't believe I'm doing actual business on this. I'm like, wait till you do it through Facebook Messenger. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm at the point where I book a lot of guests. I find interesting ideas on Facebook. Um, So Facebook is a place where I probably am the voyeur more than I am the communicator. But I find it an interesting place in terms of what people are thinking about, talking about. Um, We did a story yesterday that we caught on Facebook about people being upset over a oil drilling rig being on the latest Colorado mug at Starbucks. Oh. And that was something we all found through a Facebook hashtag yesterday. I hadn't seen that one. 
Yeah. And, you know, we're like, really, you're arguing about a Facebook mug. But there were people who were saying that wasn't representative of Colorado. And then, of course, the oil and gas industry very aptly and correctly pointed out about the amount of business that they do in Colorado annually. And, yes, there is. Their answer was, we're as Colorado as Coors beer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, Kathy. I know you got a lot of news to produce. Uh, I appreciate the time. I appreciate you reaching out because this is an absolute delight. I, anytime I can talk news and especially any, anytime I can talk radio, it's sort of the future of journalism. Uh, I'm thrilled and I think you're doing exceptional work and I wish Thanks, you continued John. success. Thanks, John. And I wish the same for John of all trades. I appreciate it. And let's call episode 184 of the John of all trades podcast. Good with Kathy Walker, news director at KOA news radio. What a delight. What incredible insight. And I'm so happy that she is looking out for the people of Denver and running a 24-hour news enterprise. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. If you're running a campaign, if you're doing anything online, if you're building a website, if you're trying to get your message out to people, Four Degrees can help you do it in a very robust, targeted, tailored, and cost-effective way. They run all manner of campaigns all throughout the year, so give them a look. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Check out John of All Trades on social media. J-O-A-T pod is the handle for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. New episode previews go up on Monday. That's on Facebook only. New episodes drop on Wednesday. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and the homepage, johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. That'll do it for this week. I'll be back here with fresh content next week. So stay up to date on all those social media channels. Give us a rating. Give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of your podcast listening devices. And until I hear you back here again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. speak.